to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, we are in chapter 10. It has been uh, almost three weeks since we have been in here because of uh, Easter. And so we want to spend a little time here just kind of bringing ourselves up to speed because we're at the very end, if you will, of the doctrinal section. Ten chapters of doctrine. I'm so proud of you for hanging in there. Week after week, it has been heavy lifting, heavy lifting, but hopefully you have been uh, learning as much as I have, and God has been working on your heart on each of these areas. As they, uh, they It's such rich doctrine in the book of Hebrews. And so I hopefully, uh, as we finish up this doctrinal section, from this point, we have one more week as we finish up through verse 18, and then from chapter 10, verse 19, until the end of this a book. It's all how we're going to apply all those wonderful things we learned in ten and a half chapters. And so that starts in uh, chapter 10, verse 19, and from there on to the end of the book. So uh, I'm excited to see what God says we're supposed to do with all this knowledge we've been uh, garnering uh, through this time. Well, let's uh, go to the Lord of Prayer, shall we? And then uh, we'll, we'll dig in here a little bit. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the richness of your word. I thank you, Lord, for just the depths of the truth of your word. And Lord, with lots of competing voices out in the world today, it's easy to get sidetracked. It's, it's easy to lose our way. It's easy to believe things just because others believe things. But your truth stands alone. And so, Father, as we dig deeper now, in and finish off this doctrinal section. Lord, I pray that you'll bring to remembrance as we're recapping some of those wonderful truths here this morning. Bring to our remembrance the, the richness of your truth and what we're to do with those. So, Father, I pray that you would bless our time here together this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we've approached chapter 10, we saw that the sacrificial system of the law could not bring about the forgiveness of man. And although the author of Hebrews does indeed, he keeps coming back and pointing out the inadequacies and the inefficiencies of the Old Covenant, he's not trying to persuade these Jewish Christians and professing Christians to despise the Old Covenant. He's not saying, you should hate this. He is saying, rather, that the law had its place, it had its purpose in God's redemptive plan. And we should understand it that way. He wants them to see ultimately that everything that the law was foreshadowing, everything that it uh, was pointing to will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of it, every bit of it, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So to demonstrate that, the the author begins to lay the groundwork for what was accomplished for us in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And one of the most important things that was accomplished for you and for me was the complete and total forgiveness of your sins. Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross provided for you complete and total forgiveness. I want you to just think about that for just a second. Because without complete and total forgiveness, my friends, you don't have access to God. You don't have a right standing with God. You don't have salvation. But Jesus Christ 
provided that for you. So let's look at our text here. At beginning in verse 1, I just want to kind of, uh, because we're wrapping up this doctrinal section, I want to go back to chapter 10, verse 1. And remember, uh, if you will, kind of clear out some of the cobwebs from the last few weeks. Get us back into the mindset of Hebrews. Chapter 10, verses uh, 1 and 2. Let's look at those together. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can what? Never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, do what? Make perfect those who draw near. Old covenant sacrifices could never make perfect those who draw near. So the first thing we see in verse 1 is the law. What does the author mean by the law? He's talking about the ceremonial law. He's talking about the priest and the, the feast and the sacrifices and all of that. He says none of that. None of that. All the ceremonies, all the rituals and the sacrifice, they're all part of the ceremonial law. He's not talking about the entirety of the law, right? Because the moral law of God is still in effect today. What's an example of the moral law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your strength, soul, heart, and mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That has not changed. Matter of fact, Jesus said on those two, all the laws of the prophets hang on those two commands. So those moral aspects of God's law have not changed. But the ceremonial law has indeed changed. So that's his focus. The law, he says, was just a mere shadow, right? It was just a shadow of things to come. Remember, a shadow has no content. It has no form. It has no substance. It's just that. It's a shadow. But he said it's pointing to good things to come. What were the things, the good things to come? Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his atoning work on the cross. That was the good things to come. You see, all those Old Covenant sacrifices were completely and totally ineffective for the atoning of our sins. And without the forgiveness of sins, those sacrifices were insufficient for salvation. They were insufficient for access to God. They were insufficient, ineffective, incapable of providing you access to God completely, forever. Could never do it. Notice the text tells us again, the next part of verse 1, that they can never make perfect those who draw near. That word make perfect means to bring to completion, to fully accomplish God's plan for us, God's redemptive plan for us. He said that system, that system of sacrifice, feast, and rituals, all that entire ceremonial law could never accomplish God's redemptive plan for his children. He said he could never do it. What exactly is that, is that that those who draw near need to have in order to bring them to completion? Well, we just talked about it a minute ago. You need to have the complete forgiveness of your sins. You need to have complete access to God. And you need to have complete salvation. And none of those old covenant sacrifices could accomplish that. That's what the text tells us. It's a pretty definitive statement, is it not? Can never make us perfect. Can never bring us to completion. Can never forgive your sins. Can never provide you complete access. Can never give you right standing with God. Never. So a point of verse 1 then is proven in verse 2. He says, otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had the consciousness of sins. In other words, 
if the sacrifices had accomplished what God had wanted them to accomplish, then why do we keep repeating them? If you've already done, if you're already cleansed, if you already have right uh, access to God, if you already have right standing with God, if your sins have been forgiven as far as the east is from the west forever, why do I need to keep going through this ritual time and time again? Verse 3. He says then, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. See, the reason God had them do those things over and over and over again is to remind them that they were still in their sins, that their sins needed to be atoned for completely. The author of Hebrews is telling us the Old Testament worshiper would have been reminded of their sin and the very act of having to Repeat year after year on the Day of Atonement, they had to were reminding themselves again and again and again, you're still in your sin. Your sin still needs to be atoned for with God. My friends, God designed that old covenant ceremonial system not as a means of atoning for their sins. That system was never designed for that. But it was designed to point forward to a sacrifice that would give them complete forgiveness that would give them complete access to God. Romans chapter 3 tells us that God held back his wrath just like he did, just like the blood, remember, that was put over the lentil when the angel of death passed over Egypt. And God struck all the firstborn that were not covered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Remember that? And although all Israel's firstborn would eventually die. They did not die that night, did they? Because God delayed his justice on account of the sacrifice of the lamb, the sacrifice that they offered in faith, that God would pass over them, that the blood would cover them for their sins. The same was true when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement and sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. Their sins were covered. But as soon as they left there and sinned again, guess what? i got to carry that guilt again until next year. Again and again and again. Verse 4 reminds us of the truth of this. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That word impossible is an absolute term. We might express it this way today. There's no way, no how, absolutely no chance of possibility of that ever happening. Does that sound definitive enough? It's the same sense of the absoluteness that we talked about in chapter 6 when it said it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. Not one single person was ever saved through the offering of a sacrifice in the Old Covenant. Not one. You cannot atone for your sins, my friends, no matter how many ceremonies you attend, no how many rituals you participate in, no matter how many candles you light, how many things you give up for Lent, it is impossible. There's no amount of religious activity that you can do to take away your sins. There's no amount of baptismal waters. There's no amount of communion. There's no amount of church memberships. There's no amount of giving. There's no amount of serving. There's no amount of aisle walking, hand raising will ever save your soul without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is impossible. 
the text tells us. So then, we have seen the inadequacy of the old covenant, the ceremonial law, that could never bring about true forgiveness, could never take away your sins, could never bring about perfection or the completion of God's will for you. So what sacrifice would do that? Well, we saw that in verses 5 and 6. Let's just look at that quickly. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. The cross was the will of God the Father. Therefore, we see that there in the beginning of verse 5. Therefore, based on all the reasons the author just shared with us that we just talked about in verses 1 through 4. Therefore, when he comes into the world, the Father's will will be accomplished. Who is the he? That's Jesus. When did he come into the world? At the incarnation. Now, this is quoted from Psalm 40. Do you remember that? Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. It's a psalm of David. It was a psalm written by David through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's much, much more than that. Certainly, it has aspects like all prophecy. It has some fulfillment in the life of David at that time, but the rest of it can only be fulfilled by the greater David, by Jesus. What we actually see in this, in Psalm 40, which is quoted for here today, is a glimpse of a private conversation between God the Son and God the Father. And so these verses were spoken by God the Son to God the Father before he left heaven to come into the world. What did he say? Verse 5 tells us, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. And again in verse 6, In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've taken no pleasure. Now, in what sense could God not have taken any pleasure or desire something that he himself commanded to be instituted? In the sense that it could never take away sin. They could never make men perfect. They could never make men complete. could never make men holy. And because of their ineffectiveness, they could never accomplish the Father's will of having all of his children with him in his presence forever. The only way that could happen is if we were made holy. Made holy. Set apart. Sanctified. The old sacrifices just couldn't do that. They, they served as a constant reminder of man's sinfulness, and the guilt of our sin remained with them. What this conversation also reveals to us is that God knew that the only sacrifice that would ever accomplish his will would be the voluntary sacrifice of his son who shed blood on that cross would bring about perfection or the completion of God's will. Can you imagine what that conversation must have been like? And we can only imagine what God the Father and God the Son in the perfect splendor of heaven and God, the Father, shares his plan of redeeming mankind. And they both know that the only way that can ever happen is if God puts on human flesh as a man and dies on a cross to atone for the sins of a stiff-necked, rebellious people. 
Think about that for just a second. And God the Father didn't say, you need to go. You have to go. God the Son said, I will go for you, Father, to accomplish your will in perfect love. Now, none of us here have seen the splendor of heaven. But imagine leaving all of that where angels sing your praises 24-7. There's no sin. There's no death. There's no disease. There's no sickness. And you voluntarily leave that to come here, to put on flesh, to die for a people who rebel against you. Verses 5 and 6 continue, which is why the gospel prepared a body for him. That's talking about his virgin birth. Jesus didn't have an earthly father, but rather a heavenly father. If Jesus had been born through Joseph, he would have been born like you and me with a sin nature. He would have inherited Adam's sin nature, just like every one of us, and that would have made Jesus a sinner. And brothers and sisters, sinners make lousy saviors. Okay? Can't happen. Secondly, Jesus needed to have a human body prepared for him because he was a representative for man. He was a a mediator between God and man. And he needed to die. And because God is eternal, he could not die. So he needed that human body. Then finally, in verses uh, 7 to 9, let's look at that together. It said, Then he said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written to me to do your will, O God. And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings, sacrifices for sin you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure of them which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. Notice our text there in verse 7. Then I said, again, this is Jesus speaking 2,000 years ago, Behold, I have come to do your will. What was God's will? Not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law to seek and save the lost and to give his ransom as a life for many. Jesus came in this world to save lost sinners from their sins. Notice it said in verse 7, in the scroll of the book, this is written of me. What's that referring to? He's talking about all those Old Testament prophecies, prophecies that talked about Jesus coming, the Messiah coming, who would come to do the will of the Father and save his people from their sins. Again in verse 8, he repeats now for the third or fourth time that God takes no pleasure, no desire in those old covenant sacrifices to continue. God has no desire to see an endless repetition of ineffective, inadequate ceremonies or empty religious rituals which can never take away your sin. Behold, he said, that's what Jesus said, I have come to do your will. And Jesus came to accomplish the will of the Father in the only way possible. To be born of a virgin, to put on flesh, he needed to be a man. He needed to shed his blood, paying the wages for our, our sin, and that through his shed blood on that cross, our sins would be forgiven by faith. No animal sacrifice could ever accomplish that. No amount of ceremonies, no amount of rituals could accomplish this. No one was ever saved from an animal sacrifice, as I said. It would take a new covenant with a better priesthood and a better priest and a better sacrifice to accomplish that. Verse 9, God takes away the ceremonial law with all its animal sacrifices and replaces it with a new covenant, which is established and accomplished through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Notice two things there. The ceremonial sacrifices, rituals, and offerings of the Old Covenant, shed blood of Jesus Christ, are mutually exclusive. In other words, those two things don't go together. Okay? This idea of salvation by works and salvation by faith, they don't go together. There's no other way by which men can be saved than through faith in the atoning work of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Couldn't be any clearer, my friends. Verse 10, through the obedience of Jesus, we are sanctified once and for all. What are the results of Jesus' voluntary and obedient offering of himself to accomplish the Father's will? Verse 10 tells us here, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. For how long? Once for all. Once for all. You have been sanctified. You have been set apart. You have been consecrated. You have been made holy once for all time. Once forever. Look at that again. By this will. Whose will? God the Father. Through his obedience, Jesus' obedience to accomplish the Father's will, we have been sanctified. How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Through his voluntary sacrificial death on the cross. This is the body that God prepared for him. You read in verses 5 and 6. For this very purpose, offered once and for all, and by this and through this, we are set apart. We are made holy. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, at that moment, my friends, you are sanctified. You are set apart positionally. In God's mind, when he looks at you and me, he doesn't see all of our sin. You know what he sees? He sees the perfect sinlessness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Because, my friends, if he saw all of our sin every day, we had to keep doing that again and again and again. We would have no hope of eternal salvation. We are made holy. How can we be invited into the presence of God and remain with him forever? We need to be made holy. You must be holy for God is holy. That was never going to happen with the blood of bulls and goats. It could only happen through the perfect sacrifice from a perfect man who was 100% God and 100% man who could not sin. God planned this long ago. Does that mean we never sin? Of course not. 1 John 1 8 tells us if we say there's no sin in us, we're a liar, right? We do not have God in us. We're not of God if we think that we never sin. I don't know anybody like that, but there might be somebody who doesn't think they sin anymore. Positionally, we are set apart. All right, my friends, let's look at verse 11 here. In the time that we have, we need to move quickly here. Verses 11 through 14, that brings us up to speed where we were at. Let's look at verse 11 first. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices 
Here we go again. Which can do what? Never take away sins. He's really recapping here. So point number one, the offering of the priest could never take away sins. The offering of the priests could never take away sins. The totality of our forgiveness here is illustrated by the contrast between the unfinished, repetitive ministry of these Old Testament priests and the finished, one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He's going to just compare those quickly here in these verses. Day after day after day, they offered sacrifices. No time off from making sacrifices for those priests. No vacation time. Day after day, month, week after week, month after month, year after year. It never ended. Why? Because people continued to live in their sin. Leviticus tells us there were 24 orders, and when all of those 24 orders had orders within them as well. There were scads of priests, and they were busy all the time. They had their own calendar. They served throughout the year at appropriate times. There was so much to do. And all these priests doing all this sacrificing, doing it over and over and day after day. Why? Because it could never eliminate sin. It just had to be repeated again and again. It would never provide that complete and perfect atonement that they needed. It could never remove even one of their sins. It could only cover it temporarily so it could never rest. Let's look at verses 12 and 13 together. But he, who is this here? Jesus having offered one sacrifice for sins for how long? For all time or forever, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 12. Look at the contrast. That's what he's trying to show us here. There's a contrast between that perpetual sacrificing of the priest to the one sacrifice for all sins by Christ. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were many. With Jesus, there was one. Remember, they had a sacrifice for sin. They had a sacrifice for dedication. There was a sin offering, a guilt offering, a trespass offering, a burnt offering. I mean, they just cover every possible sin. By contrast, the sacrifice of Jesus was a single sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. But I want you to notice also that having offered one sacrifice for sins of all time, Jesus did something that the priest could never do, which was do what? He sat down. He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. One thing the priest could never do was sit down. There weren't even any chairs in there to sit down. There were no benches. There were nothing. There were lampstands and altars and tables, but no chairs. The priests were always standing. There was always another sacrifice to be made. There was always another offering to officiate. But Jesus is the high priest who sat down. Why did he sit down? To signify that his work was completed. They could never do that because their work was never done. Jesus sat down, resting upon his finished work on the cross. There was no need to make any more Blood offerings. There was no need to shed any more blood. There was no need to 
uh, make one more sacrifice on the altar for the forgiveness of our sins because Jesus' one-time sacrifice was the perfect atonement for our sins. How do we know that? Because Jesus said himself, it is finished. Notice also that the place of his sitting down was the place of the greatest glory in the universe. He sat down at the right hand of God. The cross was a great victory, but the totality of that victory is not yet fully realized. We still await a time when the enemies of Christ might realize their final defeat. This promise is pictured for us rather graphically, I should say, in verse 13. Look at that again. There is coming a day when his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. The sign of a complete conquest in the ancient world was when the enemies of a conquering king were brought before him and made to prostrate themselves on the ground. And the victorious king would put his foot on their neck as a sign of complete sovereign rule and dominion over the enemies. It was a sign to demonstrate to everybody this king has conquered his enemies. It was a picture of complete victory. And Jesus won the victory at his death and burial and resurrection, but the final aspect of that victory has not yet been completed. It still awaits the final culmination. This is another reference, incidentally, to Psalm 110. It's repeated in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and the book of Acts also. It's almost as if God wants us to remind ourselves there's yet a final victory to come. It's meant to express the idea that Jesus is sovereign over all things and he is Lord of all. Keep your place here, but flip, if you will, to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Go back just a couple books here. Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 9. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That sums it up best, does it not? To those who continue to rebel against him and his word. To all those who die in their unbelief. The picture here in metaphorical language is that someday Jesus will use those vanquished souls as his footrest. Look at verse 14 now. For by one offering, he has perfected, here we go, we got that word perfected again, for all time, those who are sanctified. Point number three, Jesus perfected for all time those who are sanctified. His sacrifice perfected the saints forever. All those who have been sanctified. Who is that? 
That's you and I, my friends. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, you are sanctified. You are set apart. You are made holy. You are consecrated. He's talking about believers here. And they have been perfected and sanctified for how long? For all time. Forever. Once again, as he just did in verse 10, the author of Hebrews is speaking to the eternal security of the saints. The perfection he is talking about is the perfect standing, the perfect access, the perfect righteousness, the perfect forgiveness that we received for all time the moment you are saved. There's a difference, my friend, between positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. Those are big theological terms, but we need to understand that. Or we can get confused about what it means to be sanctified. Positional sanctification is your position before God. This is how God views you. And at the moment of salvation, you are made holy. You are set apart. You have been consecrated for God and his purposes. Nothing can change that. Progressive sanctification is what you and I do every day trying to work out our salvation. Do we do it perfectly? Not according to 1 John 1.8. If we say that we don't sin, right, we are a liar. That's pretty direct. It's hard to misinterpret, isn't it? No, we're working out our salvation. We're learning how to shed more and more of our humanity, if you will, our, our desire that bondage we were under sin, and we're learning more to yield more and more to the Holy Spirit, to walk more and more through the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's a progressive sanctification. That happens the moment, the moment you are saved, that journey begins. That's why salvation isn't the end of the road, it's the beginning of your journey. You know when you're going to arrive at the end of that journey? When the Lord calls you home. Until then, I don't care how old you are, you will be continually working on being more and more like Jesus. That's progressive sanctification. Two different things. He didn't perfect us, notice, until we sin next time. He didn't bring us into access of God until we blow it and deserve to get kicked out. No, notice again, for by one offering, he brought us into God's presence forever forever. There's no way a believer can lose that forever forgiveness. And the ceremonial law under the old covenant could not have ever accomplished that. There's no perfection achieved in access to God through the law. None. Flip back a page to Hebrews 9, verse 9. Just look at that real quickly. I just want to remind you that the author keeps bringing this up, this idea of perfection, of completion. He says in verse, I'll pick it up in verse 8, the Holy Spirit, chapter 9, verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Remember, how do you get access to God? They're looking around like, we can't even get into the first outer court. How are we ever going to have, you keep telling us we're going to have access to God. We can't even get there. And the author of Hebrews says, that's not been disclosed yet. 
He says, verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect. And then remember chapter 10, right? The law, the good things to come, verse 1 and 2, again, the very form of things, can never by those sacrifices offered continually make perfect those who draw near. He keeps coming back to the same point. Maybe you're struggling with that a little bit, and you're saying, well, I guess that means if I can never lose my position before God, that I can just live however I want to live then. That question was actually posed to Paul in Romans chapter 6. Shall we sin so that grace may abound? You know what Paul said? He said, certainly not, or God forbid that you would even think that. How shall we who are servants of Christ yield our members as servants of unrighteousness? In other words, what do you think you're doing? Don't you understand now that you are dead to sin? If you're a true believer, he's saying, you wouldn't even have that desire to live your life in continual sin. Not that you won't be tempted to sin, but you won't have a desire to live your life like that all the time. My friends, there's nothing more that needs to be done for your redemption. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. What could possibly be added to that? And yet today we see many who will do everything to try to add something to this once and for all sacrifice of our Lord. They'll try to incorporate good works as an add-on to assure their salvation. We are not saved by good works, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And we are not kept saved by them either. Good works do play a role in the lives of God's people, but only to the extent that God is working in you and through you to accomplish his will. And incidentally, according to Ephesians 2.10, those works were prepared before you, beforehand, before you were even born. My friends, Jesus did it all. I love that hymn. Jesus did it all. It is through him and by him that we are saved and sanctified. You cannot add to Christ's work on the cross. You cannot diminish it either. It is finished. And if you're here as a believer this morning, I hope you are living your life every day with a full assurance of faith. I hope you every day you're living that out. Not perfectly. Not perfectly. Lastly, if you're here today and you're not sure of your salvation, I pray that you would not let another day go by where you're not absolutely sure of your eternal destiny. Do not presume upon God's grace and think that you're saved without knowing that you're saved. You can't be saved by being a good person. You can't be saved by being better than somebody else. You can't be saved by thinking your way to God. You can't be saved by earning your way to God. You can only be saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you receive his death, burial, resurrection, and believe in your heart, the Word of God tells us you will 
be saved. Not you might be saved, or you should be saved, or you could be saved, but you will be saved. And my friends, your, your life will never be the same after that in a very glorious way. Don't leave here today with questions unanswered. Stick around. Speak to me. Speak to one of the elders. We would love to talk to you about the assurance of your salvation. Let's bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the truth of your word. Lord, what a wonderful truth that is. Lord, I get excited every time we go through a passage and we talk about what you've done for us. What a joy, Father, the truth of your word is. I thank you for every single person that you've brought here today. I thank you, Lord, for where we're at in our journey. Some are seeking, some are growing. Some, Lord, are further along in this journey of sanctification. Some just began. But, Father, you know exactly where everyone is at. You know exactly what they need. And it all starts, Lord, with humbling ourselves and receiving the truth of your gospel. And then, Lord, humbling ourselves again and submitting to the truth of your word. Father, thank you. Thank you for your glorious gospel. Father, work in the hearts and minds of all who are here today, Lord, according to your perfect will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.